0: To learn more about new research advances in management of malignant gliomas, I met with Dr. Patrick Wen, who began
1: by commenting on a key trend he's observing in clinical investigation. The major advance, I think, right now is the addition of anti VEGF therapies. About three years ago, Virginia Stockvans, a medical oncologist in Dallas, treated a number of glioblastoma patients with Avastin with CPT 11 and saw very striking responses. And that's been replicated in a number of trials, including a randomized phase 2 that we took part in. So responses are in the range of 30 to 50%. And to put that in perspective, the response rate for temozolomide is in the order of 5%. So it's a huge change in terms of what we're seeing in patients. One of the problems, though, is when you inhibit VEGF, you make blood vessels less permeable. And so there's less contrast enhancement. And so one of the issues is whether you're just making the scans look better and not really improving patient outcome. But I think the progression-free survival is also increased. It goes from the six-month progression-free survival, which is the main endpoint we use in glioblastomas. For inactive drugs, it ranges from about 8 to 15%. For temozolomide, it's 21% progression-free at six months. And with Avastin or Bevacizumab, it's in the order of about 40 to 50%. So I think there is a real improvement in that factor. And then I think the other factor that everybody who treats patients with glioblastoma has noticed is improvement in peritumal edema. The peritumal edema is produced by VEGF primarily. And if you have an anti-VEGF therapy, a consequence of using that therapy is that you decrease the edema, you decrease steroid usage, And so in terms of patient quality of life, I think that's also been a really good and noticeable advance. The majority of patients eventually end up on steroids, and many of them become cushionoid. You know, their self-image is changed, and they get steroid myopathy. and, And then I think the other problem that's emerging as patients live longer is that they get osteoporosis, and normally, we don't care about osteoporosis because you assume the patient will die before it becomes an issue. But now as they live longer, the issue of compression fractures is becoming a big problem. And that really affects the quality of life. There's a lot of pain. And even if they're doing well from the tumor point of view, they may not be doing well overall.
0: That's amazing. How long do you have to be on corticosteroids to see fractures?
1: It's usually quite a while. You know, We're talking about many months or a year or more. And in the past, when the average survival was little more than a year, it's usually not a huge problem. But now a lot of people are getting into their second year and sometimes even their third years. And if they've been on steroids all this time, that's an issue.
0: Is there any role for anti-VEGF therapy, specifically bevacizumab, specifically for the edema? In other words, even if the
1: tumor is progressing, is there any rationale to continue it? So for edema... In a variety of settings, we thought of using bevacizumab as an anti-edema effect as well as for the anti-tumor effect. The problem is that it has some rare but serious side effects and the cost is prohibitive. So as the primary treatment, it's not the main thing that we would use.
0: What do we know about the mechanism of action with bevacizumab and glioblastoma? There's a lot of debate in all the other tumors. There's the issue of chemotherapy delivery, the issue of anti-angiogenesis. What do you think is going on with GBM?
1: I think it's like all the other tumors, it's not settled. With all the other approved indications of bevacizumab, it's usually with chemotherapy. And so the idea is that perhaps through normalization of blood vessels, you get improved delivery. With glioblastomas, the trials with single-agent bevacizumab, the survival is similar to combination with irinotecan, And so if it gets approved next year and they've submitted an application, it would be one of the few indications where it would be approved as a single agent. So I think as a single agent in glioblastomas, the drug has some activity. Whether chemotherapy adds to that activity is not settled right now. That The trial wasn't really powered to tell the difference between the two arms. We collaborate closely with Mass General, and so they've been working on a different drug for inhibiting angiogenesis, a drug called sidirinib, a pan-VEGF receptor inhibitor. And so we were part of that trial and put on half the patients on that trial. What was your impression about that agent? I think that's also an active agent. The response rates are similar to bevacizumab. Because it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, the toxicity profiles are different. We use somewhat high doses, and so hypertension, fatigue, and diarrhea were fairly troublesome at times. But I think they've found in other studies that you can cut the dose, and hopefully by cutting the dose, you'll be better tolerated. One of the advantages of bevacizumab is that it's actually, for the patient, relatively well tolerated, although you know there are small incidents of serious side effects.
0: Any role or interest in combining a TKI like sidirinib with bevacizumab?
1: I think people have thought of doing that, but combining these drugs have proved a lot harder than people have thought There is a trial, actually, of bevacizumab with serafinib that Mayo Clinic is going to carry out, but the dose of both the bevacizumab and serafinib are significantly reduced from the single-agent doses. This is GBM? In GBM.
0: What do we know about serafinib in GBM?
1: There have been a number of trials, both as a single-agent and in combination. The single-agent trials, I haven't seen the final published reports. We've been involved through the North American Brain Tumor Consortium, with three trials where we combine serafinib with another tyrosine kinase inhibitor, either Timserolimis, an mTOR inhibitor, Tipifanib, transferase inhibitor, or Allotinib, uh, EGFR inhibitor. I think, again, there's an issue of toxicity when you combine these drugs, so you end up lowering the doses, and that could affect your outcome. So with some of these arms, we've passed phase one and we're in phase two. So the final results are not available yet. But in this next year, they should become available.
0: What are some of the major phase three studies that are going on right now that you think are going to maybe impact on patient care in the next few years?
1: I think because bevacizumab has shown some activity in recurrent tumors, there's a lot of interest in using it upfront with radiation. So there are two planned phase three studies randomizing patients to radiation and temozolomide alone, or with the addition of bevacizumab. And it'll be placebo-controlled. So one is being done by RTOG, and one is being done mainly in Europe. And what's the actual schedule or timing of the two drugs? The temozolomide will be the standard regimen, six weeks of daily low-dose temozolomide, followed by a month break, and then six to 12 cycles of monthly temozolomide using the five days every month. The bevacizumab regimen is 10 milligrams every two weeks.
0: Where are we right now in terms of genomic studies and trying to understand the biology of this disease?
1: There's been a lot of work in genomics, and it's sort of been a good and disappointing thing. So recently the Cancer Genome Atlas published their results in Nature, and that was a very important collaborative study. It identified relatively few new targets, NF1 is one of them, and also HER2, which is mutated in maybe 8% of patients. But there haven't been a lot of newer targets. There's also been a lot of work in trying to profile tumors and select groups that have better outcomes. And Genentech and MD Anderson have a 8-gene chip that seems to stratify patients fairly well in terms of prognosis, and that's going to be, I think, more widely used.
0: You mentioned that HER2 is observed in some of these patients. Have any anti-HER2 therapies been tested?
1: The North American Brain Tumor Consortium finished a trial of lapatinib. It was actually an interesting study because every patient got the drug before surgery, and then at surgery, that tumor was taken out to measure drug concentration and also to see if the target was inhibited. And at least the drug concentration part suggests that it gets in very well. And in fact, maybe accumulated in tumor tissue. But the efficacy analysis is not complete, so we don't actually know the efficacy. Has trastuzumab been looked at in a similar fashion? Not in glioblastomas. You know, one of the big debates is whether antibodies that have to get through the blood brain barrier is a useful thing or not. People are looking at other antibodies, like, for instance, against EGFR. But we really don't know whether it only works if you're targeting vasculature or whether antibodies that target tumor cells would work just as well. We think probably not.
0: We had a big debate about that at the meeting we did in the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium because this issue of and brain mets came up. And of course, Nancy Lynn from your place has looked into that. And I still, I don't know, even thinking back to my fellowship, I'm not sure I've ever clarified in my own mind the issue of the blood-brain barrier in terms of tumors. I mean, is it
1: actually there? Does it really make a difference? Or do we know that? I think it's disrupted in the center of the tumor. So you probably get some drug through. But once you get beyond the center, a lot of the infiltrating cells have a pretty intact blood-brain barrier. And so then the benefit of whatever drug you give will be modest.
0: So have responses actually been seen with lipatinib and GBM?
1: I don't know that result because it's part of that phase 3 trial, and the analysis hasn't been completed yet.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the research that has been done on bevacizumab and GBM that led to this interest in going into the phase 3 setting? Can you kind of review what we know about it at this point?
1: Sure. So the first issue was because of the experience in squamous cell lung cancer about bleeding, there was always a lot of concern about hemorrhage. So several years ago, Virginia Stock Vance treated 20-something patients and found that, it, most importantly, that it was safe, but also the response rate was high. So that led to Jim Bredenberg at Duke and his colleagues conducting a Phase two study in glioblastomas. And it was a study with a moderate number of patients where the response rate, I think, was in the order of 50%, and the six-month progression-free survival was in excess of 40%. Compared to 21% for temozolomide, and so that led to a randomized phase 2 study with approximately 80 patients in each arm of bevacizumab alone versus bevacizumab with irinotecan. And in that study, the response rates were 30 to 40%. The six-month progression-free survival rate was in the order of 40 to 50%, and the overall survival was about nine months. So even though the overall survival is only modestly increased, I think the PFS-6 is really striking, and certainly the response rate is very striking.
0: Any thoughts about the extent to which arena Tcan actually is beneficial in this situation?
1: I think it adds relatively little, and the PFS-6 was actually increased, and the response rate was a little increased in the arena arm, but the overall survival was not. And I think it's at the cost of toxicity. So I think initially everybody used the combination. Now I think more and more people are just using single agent or using other chemotherapies.
0: What about side effects and toxicity? First, maybe starting out with the issue of bleeding and thrombosis. What do we know about that right now?
1: There is a small rate of bleeding into tumors and into the rest of the brain, but it's pretty low. It's in the order of 2 or 3% at the most. And the background rate in glioblastomers is probably between 1% and 2%, so it's maybe slightly higher. Glioblastomas also have a very high rate of thromboembolism. Up to 30% of patients sometime during the course of the illness will get thromboembolism, and that rate is probably increased with bevacizumab. How much is increased is not really known. What's the mechanism? I think these tumors have a lot of tissue factor, for one thing. But the clotting rate is as high as pancreatic cancers or some of the other cancers that people normally think of. And then I think there's a small risk of bowel perforation, although it's relatively small. And then all the usual other things, hypertension. and.
0: How do you really determine that? Has there been any randomized trials with BEV in one arm and no BEV in the other arm? No. So this is sort of indirect comparison. Yeah. What about the issue of fatigue? I actually interviewed Jim Vredenberg for this series, and he was talking to me about the fatigue that's seen in these patients and actually
1: speculated that maybe some kind of cytokine might be involved. I think they do have fatigue. It's not horrible. I think if you give it with the can, it's much worse. But it is a factor. But I think overall it's relatively modest. We use modafinil quite often, and that seems to help some of these patients.
0: What's modafinil?
1: It's a drug that's used for narcolepsy and excessive daytime sleepiness from various causes, but it also helps fatigue. And there's been a couple of studies from UCLA, a couple of them presented actually at the recent Society for Neurooncology meeting in November, where they looked at quality of life scales and fatigue scales with modafinil. And it's well tolerated and it seems very active. And that's been our experience with patients.
0: Let's talk a little bit about temozolomide. First of all, what do we know about the mechanism of action, potential synergy with radiation therapy? Is it just a straightforward cytotoxic or anything else involved?
1: It's an alkylating agent. I think there is some data suggesting that it does radiosensitize, perhaps in the MGMT methylated tumors. But I think it's our best drug, and certainly it's far better tolerated than the older regimens of PCV and similar drugs.
0: Anything you see maybe in patients that get referred to you or just in your travels around in terms of misconceptions or misuses of temozolomide? Is everybody pretty much up to speed on what to do?
1: I think people are getting a lot more used to it. I think initially when the URTC trial came out, and still occasionally we see it now, people give the drug five days a week during radiation instead of continuously through the six weeks of treatment. And then I think the other thing that a lot of people don't do is prophylax for pneumocystis pneumonitis. They produce lymphopenia, and so there's a small risk of uh, pneumocystis pneumonitis. And it's recommended that at least during the radiation phase, you prophylax, and that's not done very often. What about temozolomide in brain mets? I think that's been pretty disappointing. I think there was a lot of hope that maybe, because it gets through, that some of the tumors that respond somewhat to temozolomide might be helped. It might have modest activity in melanoma and maybe non-small cell lung cancer, but it's pretty modest.
0: Getting back to Bevacizumab, do you think that outside of a protocol setting, assuming that cost and reimbursement is not an issue, a patient who has the funds or has reimbursement or whatever, do you think that there's a non-protocol role for Bev right now?
1: I think in recurrent tumors, it's probably our best drug And so at least at our center, every patient gets it at some point in the recurrent setting. We tend to try and put people on trials first if they relapse after standard therapy and then delay the use of bevacizumab, although other people will use it as soon as they recur. I think one of the reasons is that once you go on bevacizumab, it's pretty hard to get into trials. So it reduces the options to some extent for the patient and I think also salvaging a patient who progresses on bevacizumab is difficult. I think the drug, at least in a subset of patients, changes the natural history. By inhibiting angiogenesis, the patients sometimes don't recur as a big enhancing mass, but they have this infiltrating tumor that's not enhancing. And these infiltrating tumors, I think, are not less prone to apoptosis and less prone to cytotoxic therapies. So this whole issue of salvaging patients from bevacizumab is a big problem in the field right now.
0: Now, in the recurrent setting, are there any difficulties in obtaining the drug and reimbursement?
1: I think things have got a lot better. So it's pretty rare that we have any problems now.
0: What do you see in terms of sort of patterns of care, in terms of who actually manages these patients in the community setting? Is it medical oncologist, neurologist, or both?
1: I think it's mainly medical oncologists. Sometimes they partner with a neurologist who helps them with the seizure issues, but it's often the medical oncologists.
0: How does the care flow at your own place at Dana-Farber in terms of neurologists and medical oncologists?
1: At our institution, we just deal with everything. So all the primary brain tumors come to us. The medical oncologists will deal with the brain metastases for their specific disease site. Are there any
0: patients that you've taken care of that we could talk about without using their names or identifying information to sort of give an idea sort of how you talk to patients, what you say to them, and sort of the clinical management of these people? Anybody that we could talk about?
1: Sure. One patient that I'm thinking of now is an example of a very common problem called pseudoprogression. And this is a problem that seems to have become more common since the use of temozolomide with radiation. The person I'm thinking of is a lawyer in his 40s who had radiation with daily temozolomide for the six weeks. How did he present? He had headaches and some visual problems. His tumor was in the right parietal occipital area.
0: He had a lot of edema?
1: He had a moderate amount of edema.
0: I assume you put him on steroids and he got better?
1: Yeah, he was put on steroids, had surgery, and then after surgery was able to be weaned off steroids. Actually, one misconception that a lot of people have is that you have to have everybody on steroids through radiation. And I think, in addition to the side effects, there's some preclinical evidence that steroids may actually counter the activity of some of the cytotoxic therapies. And so if you can get people off steroids, you really should.
0: Now, in his case, how long did it take for his headache and symptoms to go away?
1: It took a few days, but he was operated, I think, within five days of the MRI. So,
0: The gliadel wafer, was that considered for him, or do you consider it in any patients, or do your neurosurgeons consider it?
1: Our neurosurgeons don't use it very often. It is an improved treatment, and I think if, at our center, because we have a lot of protocols, a lot of times, once you put in gliadel wafers, you're not eligible for any protocols. And so they don't use it partly for that reason, partly because there's an issue of maybe slightly more inflammation and that the data, it's somewhat positive, but not as positive as Temozolamide.
0: I'm curious in terms of in your initial meetings with this patient, did the issue of prognosis and survival come up specifically and what did you say to him?
1: I think patients differ in what they want to know, especially in the first meeting and we meet them fairly frequently initially. So sometimes if you know that they don't want to hear everything the first time we spread the news. This person wanted to know everything and he was very sophisticated and had a brother who was a surgeon so they wanted the numbers and in some ways that's a lot easier. I think it's harder when people don't want to know all the details.
0: What, what kinds of numbers did you give to him and what do you give to most patients?
1: I think I give the average which is about a year, year and a half. But then I also talk about the range, and people who are young and in good shape like he was you know, would hopefully do much better. And nowadays we also tend to look for the MGMT status, and I think that also makes a difference. Can you explain what the MGMT status is? Temozolomide and other alkylating agents causes methylation of the O6 position of guanine and produces adducts. And MGMT is methylguanine methyltransferase. It's a repair enzyme that's present in over half of tumor cells. And if it's there, then the tumor cells are not very sensitive to temozolomide. If the promoter of MGMT is methylated, then the gene is turned off, and the tumor cells don't have a lot of MGMT. And so those tumor cells should be more sensitive. And the phase 3 trial from the ERRTC suggested that. And so... We routinely check for promoter methylation status, and that helps guide us also a little bit. It's not perfect, and the validation trials are in progress, so it's not completely accepted.
0: What was this patient's status?
1: I think he was methylated.
0: And... Getting back to this issue of prognosis, I'm sure one thing patients want to hear about is the possibility that they could have an extended survival, maybe an extraordinary kind of a situation. I mean, do you see patients who go out five years and are functionally doing well?
1: Yeah, five years is not that uncommon. It's only a tale. And, you know, I even have a few patients who are 15 years out. So they were treated with BCNU and radiation years ago. I think these patients, they probably have much more sensitive tumors, and you know that probably accounts for their better outcome.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about what happened with this patient?
1: So he had the radiation and the temozolomide, and then four weeks later, he obtained his routine follow-up scan, and it looked worse, and this is a big problem. Maybe 40% of patients, that first scan looks worse. And so the issue is, is it worse because the tumor is just growing and the radiation in temozolomide is not effective? Or is it what's called pseudo progression, where there is increased contrast enhancement just because of a radiation effect that will just settle down with time? And it's very hard to separate out the two. The scans can look identical. PET scans and perfusion imaging are not that useful in differentiating. I think there is some data from Italy that If you have a methylated MGMT promoter and your scan looks worse, it's much more likely to be pseudoprogression than not. But a lot of times, if the patient isn't very symptomatic, we would continue to treat with standard five days a month temzolamide for one or two cycles and watch them closely. And if it's this phenomenon of pseudoprogression, it will settle down with time. And if it's real progression, it will continue to get worse. So about half the time it's real progression, half the time it's pseudoprogression. What happened with him? Fortunately, he had pseudoprogression.
0: So when you repeated the imaging, it was better?
1: It wasn't better initially, it was the same. And then he went on to finish a year of treatment, and actually he's doing well. I think he's in his second year now.
0: So he's been off therapy?
1: He's been off therapy for a while. Are
0: there any clinical trials that a patient like that would be eligible for?
1: People who are off therapy, late on. Not that I'm aware of. Many trials you have to enroll from day one before radiation. But there are a number of trials where you could be having your adjuvant temozolomide, that's six months to a year, where you could add drugs. So we have a trial of of trap virinostat, and a PI3 kinase inhibitor, just in that setting.
0: What's this patient's state of mind nowadays?
1: He's working full-time as a lawyer. He has to come for scans every two months. And I'm sure at the back of his mind... The thought of it coming back at any time is there, but he's able to live a reasonably normal life. I think that every two-month visits are traumatic, at least for that day.
0: How much of an issue is the neuroradiologist and management of these patients? You just mentioned sort of a tricky little issue. In general, are most neuroradiologists in the community fully able to deal with these kinds of patients and situations, or are there some areas that they're problems with?
1: I don't know how well known this issue of pseudoprogression is in the general population. So it is difficult. Even if you know about it, it's hard to differentiate the two. But it's very easy just to see any worsening and call it progression.
0: Any other patients in your practice that we could talk about that I found that very instructive?
1: Yeah. One of the first patients I used bevacizumab up front is a man who's, I think he's 37. He works in an insurance firm. And he came to me with a very bad prior occipital glioblastoma, mainly on the left, but crossed the corpus callosum. So he had bad headaches, and he was confused, and he was wheelchair-bound. And so he had a biopsy only because it wasn't operable. And then he had radiation and temozolomide. And he just crashed. The swelling from the radiation made him even worse. And he was throwing up and having bad headaches, even with a lot of steroids. So that was one of the first times I used bevacizumab during radiation. And it was really striking. I think over the next few weeks, you know, he was able to continue treatment. We were able to wean the steroids to some extent. In the old days, when someone has bad headaches and they're just not functioning in the middle of radiation, you would either try to increase the steroids more, but if it's not possible, you would stop the radiation and give a break or just give up at that point. But with the bevacizumab, he actually was able to finish radiation. And then he continued on the combination with temozolomide for a year. And now he's just on maintenance bevacizumab. And he's totally functional now. Wow. I mean, his memory is not perfect, but you wouldn't be able to tell. What's
0: his family or support system?
1: He has a wonderful wife. And his sister is a nurse, so he has a lot of help. But it was really hard initially, especially because he was doing so badly right from day one.
0: I'd love to talk to that man. What's it been like for him to have this experience? What's it been like for his wife? And what was it like for you?
1: You know, it's always heartbreaking, especially for someone like that. But they've been really strong, you know, done everything they could to help themselves. I know every time they come for the visits, their heart pounds and they, you know, they don't sleep the night before waiting for the scan results. So it's hard, but they've done this for a long time now, and so they're getting more used to it. And then we have also very good social workers that help them through this.
0: Has he had any side effects or problems with the bevacizumab, hypertension?
1: He hasn't. He's been really lucky. He hasn't had hypertension or protein urea or anything. But that can happen fairly often.
0: I've got to imagine it must be very unusual for you as a neuro-oncologist to see a patient so desperately ill improve like that.
1: Yeah, I think you know his tumor must have been also very sensitive to the radiation and temozolomide. Because there are other people where you don't get such good outcomes. But he stands out because he had such a good outcome from such a bad start. Now, he's still on bevacizumab now, or he's off therapy? He's on bevacizumab now. So he finished his year of temozolomide with bevacizumab. And one of the issues we don't really know is whether we should continue bevacizumab indefinitely or not. I think his feeling and his wife's feeling is that they've had such a rough time before, they don't want any risks of going back there. And they understand that there are serious risks with bevacizumab, but they're willing to take that.
0: What do you see on patients who have been on bevacizumab for a while, like him, in terms of hypertension, proteinuria, nosebleeds, et cetera?
1: I think hypertension occurs in a subset of patients. It's not hard to control. Compared to sederinib, where it's incredibly hard to control, it's not been a huge problem. Proteinuria occurs occasionally, but that's not a big problem either. We've been pretty lucky The two things that we've had are occasional patients who've had bowel perforation. We've had a handful of those. And then the other issue that we always worry about is bleeding. We've had a couple of bleeds on bevacizumab alone. But because many of these patients have venous thromboembolism, a lot of them are actually anticoagulated. And in the randomized phase 2 trial, anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin was allowed And the bleeding rate wasn't significantly increased. But we've had a couple of patients where the combination of Lovinox and vivacizumab led to bleeding.
0: What are some of the new agents and research strategies that are being tested right now that you have a sense of optimism or interest in?
1: I think a lot of focus has been on VEGF pathway inhibitors. But we know that that buys you only a modest benefit. So there's a lot of interest in combining them with drugs that either inhibit infiltration and invasion, or can overcome some of the resistant pathways. So for instance, in the sidernib trial, when patients recur, there was upregulation of basic fibroblast growth factor, and TIE2, and maybe a stromo-derived growth factor. So in going forwards if you had a drug that blocked not only VEGF receptor, but maybe FGF receptor, that might be a good thing. We have a trial of a drug called XL one eight four, which blocks both VEGF receptor and MET, CMET. And CMET's important both for angiogenesis and invasion. And that looks like a good drug. It seems very potent. The long term results we don't have. I think the other really exciting area is in the development of PI3 kinase inhibitors. It's a critical pathway in glioblastomas, as with many other tumors. And now there, there are drugs that are coming into trial in glioblastoma. So we have one that targets both the PI3 kinase as well as mTOR, called XL765. And that's in phase one trials right now. But I think there'll be a lot more of these drugs coming on, and that will be a very promising area. I think the other thing that people have realized is that targeting one receptor is probably not going to work. There was an important study by Jane Stommel and Ron DePino from Dana-Farber where they looked at glioblastomas and showed that in all the tumors there was coactivation of multiple tyrosine kinase receptors, at least three and up to 11. And so if you block one tyrosine kinase, it's not going to do too much. And so there's a lot of interest in maybe trying to inhibit downstream pathways or common pathways and I think people are starting to think about targeting NF-kappa-B and we've been very interested in using drugs like HSP-90 inhibitors that hit multiple targets and so those trials I think are coming online also.
0: What about end-of-life care for these patients? Any thoughts or comments about that and again the way you approach it and how it's approached at Dana-Farber as opposed to maybe how it's done in the community?
1: I think it's very variable. I mean, all our patients, 9, 90% plus, eventually die. And so that's unfortunately part of our work. Some programs have very good palliative care programs. We also have a wonderful palliative care program. But for us, it's sort of difficult to look after a patient and at the time of greatest need to hand them off. And so we tend to stay in touch or do most of it ourselves. But we have wonderful palliative care people, and when things are complicated, they help us a lot.
0: Any questions that you receive from docs in practice that we haven't talked about today?
1: I think one common issue is what to do when patients are treated with bevacizumab and iratecan and they progress. You know, what should you do in that situation? And in the past, the idea was maybe you'd keep them on bevacizumab and switch the chemotherapy. There's some data, I think, from colon cancer that that might be a useful thing to do. So we've done that, and we've switched it to carboplatin or CCNU or similar drugs. And unfortunately, it almost never works. We reviewed our experience and presented it at ASCO, and the results are terrible. So I think doing that for glioblastomas is not an effective treatment. And so we really have to figure out something better. And right now, unfortunately, there isn't anything that's definitely better.
0: I asked you before about the issue of bevacizumab outside of protocol setting, and you commented on the issue of recurrent disease, and yet this patient that you presented, I guess you could say, in a sense, got it up front, but I guess your feeling was he was probably progressing. Do you think that, I mean, it's going to be looked at in clinical trials, do you think that the combination of bevacizumab and temozolomide outside a protocol setting is an option that patients should be provided?
1: I think right now we don't do that routinely. I do it in patients who are doing terribly, and we have to throw everything at them. And we have a number of trials of other VEGF pathway inhibitors, like vendetinib or sidurinib and VEGF trap. So we try to put patients into trials up front. I think, you know, for a field where nothing happened for 20 years, I think things are really starting to improve, and so it's become a much more encouraging area to work in.